So if you have your Bibles, please open to Acts chapter 2. Scroll or open. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 24. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Father, we thank you once again this morning for your word and all of the treasures which are contained within it. And I ask, Lord, that you would help me to speak correctly and clearly from your word, Lord, the truths that are within it. And may it, Lord, point us to Christ, to our King, the one who first loved us. To your glory we ask. Amen. Now you may recognize our passage this morning as part of Peter speaking to thousands right after the Holy Spirit came upon him and others in the upper room. After he tells the crowd they are not drunk, he quotes the book of Joel perfectly. Then he begins this first sermon with those words we just read. And will you notice how he begins? He summarizes the life of Christ. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. That's a summary of Jesus' three years of ministry. Then, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So there is the crucifixion and death of Jesus. And then, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And he ends with the resurrection. That's his summary of the ministry of Jesus. Mighty works, wonders, and signs, then crucifixion, then resurrection. And so we note he highlights the mighty works, wonders, and signs, that is, his miracles, as an important part of his ministry on earth. Now a question for us this morning is, why did Jesus do these miracles? What's the point? And in answering that question, we can try to understand their impact, their effect, So starting with the usual who, what, when, where, why, and how. Who? Jesus. What? Miracles. When? During his roughly three years of ministry. Where? Pretty much everywhere he went. And then? The why and how? Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning. So this first verse is our focus. Men of Israel. Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Peter says Jesus was, first of all, a man, a human person. And he was attested by mighty works and wonders and signs. Now these three words, works, wonders, signs, are together in some way synonyms for the miracles of Jesus. A summary of the miracles. That is the aspects of his miracles. First, his mighty works. Well, that has its basis in power, in powerful deeds, power displayed. These words, mighty works, are translated miracles in the New American Standard. Then the wonder of Jesus in these miracles is their appearance, their effect. They are marveled at. They are clearly supernatural. And finally, the signs are the impact, their intention. They're authenticating something beyond the actual miracle. 
And what more does this verse say about their intention, their impact? Peter said about Jesus in this verse, He is a man attested to you by God with those miracles he did. He was attested by God, meaning things like exhibited, displayed, certified. So Peter is saying God the Father was the one at the works in the, was at work in his miracles. So the Father was, can we say he was certifying or endorsing Jesus through the miracles. Saying again, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Hear him, listen to him. So God did miracles through him in their midst by giving the Holy Spirit, as John says, without limit. Now we know Jesus in his ministry came to seek and to save the lost. And to accomplish that, he did a lot of teaching and lived a sinless life. And in the midst of that, he did many, many miracles. Now I could make a list of miracles which are recorded in the Bible, and many have done that. You would likely recognize them and say, yes, I know that one too. But such lists are not even remotely complete. Jesus did so many miracles that in several places of Scripture simply tell us things like He went in all the cities and villages healing every disease and affliction. And still later, they brought to Him through the whole region of Gennesaret all who were sick and they were made well. So since Jesus performed so many miracles, since they were such a frequent occurrence during his three years of ministry, we should take some time to consider what they are all about. Now the first question we might ask is, what is a miracle? Well, a regular dictionary says it is two things. An unusual or wonderful event believed to be caused by the power of God. And also, a very amazing or unusual event, thing, or achievement. So it really flows from the primary idea of God intervening in nature. A miracle is really an event which we might call the forces of nature, can't of themselves produce, and therefore must be from a supernatural agency. One could try to simplify it somewhat by saying it is God invading his ordered creation. And it's God's perfectly ordered creation which underlies the idea of miracles. We are trained, can we say, as we live our lives in a perfectly ordered world to expect everything to carry on perfectly each day. The sun comes up, the sun goes down. Air to breathe, heart keeps pumping, hair keeps growing, maybe. Warm in summer, cold in winter, we see and we become familiar with the perfect order of God's creation as we experience it and thus are prepared to see something which doesn't fit, doesn't fit what we've come to expect and say. That's a miracle because it does not fit with the natural order or what we might call God upholding the universe by the word of his power. So let's understand when a miracle occurs, it's not God arising from slumber to intervene in his autopilot world, rather he is constantly ordering and sustaining all of creation in its normal day-to-day -day functioning. To us, it's a miracle when he alters its normal order. Now I would guess most of us have no trouble believing in God doing miracles, that he can do miracles. Yet there are many who would deny them that they could have been done as written. But is that reasonable? God says through Paul, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So just to argue from the greater to the lesser, clearly God's creation is the major natural display of his power and sovereignty. And we moderns, through science, we have an overwhelming understanding of God's power in creation. Now I often point to discoveries in the heavens as an excellent example of the obvious enormity of God's power and sovereignty in creation. And here's another one of the latest examples just a few months ago. Astronomers have discovered a previously unknown variety of galaxies which are causing them to rethink the scale of the universe, settled science. 
They have ten times the mass of our Milky Way. They said it could fundamentally change our understanding of the formation and evolution of the galaxies. It's as if we have just discovered a new land animal stomping around that is the size of an elephant, but it had shockingly gone unnoticed. Now these types of announcements about shocking new space discoveries happen all the time, but probably only space nerds pay any attention. But the point is the greater to the lesser. If we believe our God is the creator and sustainer of all the heavens, then he can do the miracles as they are recorded in the Bible. But if a miracle is God intervening in a way the normal forces of nature don't produce, then the greatest miracle of all would be God himself coming into his own creation as a human. And that is, of course, the incarnation of Christ, born of a woman by the Holy Spirit, and along with that, his sinless life, substitutionary death for our sins, and resurrection. Now, the many miracles Jesus did are basically in a few categories. One, showing his power over creation. Walking on water, turning water to wine, multiplying fish, causing a fig tree to wither. And secondly, showing his power over human sickness and death. Like his many healings and raising some from the dead, and thirdly, showing his power over demons by his ordering and casting them out. And then, there are two primary effects of the miracles. The miracles authenticate the character of Jesus, who he is, and the message he proclaims. His character is revealed or authenticated when the miracles show us things like God himself is with Jesus, so Nicodemus can say, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one could do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Peter confirms God was not only with Jesus and approved him, but God did these mighty miracles through Jesus. So Peter says in our text this morning that Jesus was a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. That Jesus has authority to forgive sins when he says to the paralytic, as he miraculously heals him, Son, your sins are forgiven. That in Jesus the kingdom of God has come when Pharisees question his authority over demons, and Jesus says, But if the Spirit of God, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And finally, of course, that he is the Christ, the Son of God, when he finishes the miracle of walking on the water. And at the very end, the disciples worshipped him and declared, Truly you are the Son of God. Now, do these miracles alone authenticate him to all? Do they convince people Jesus is in fact God, he is the Messiah? Well, we know the Jewish people were already familiar with miracles. To the Jews of that day, the miracles which were performed were not simply like magic tricks to them, like some in the books of Acts might see them. Wow, this guy's a magician. He has great power. No, the Jews, for example, knew the stories of Elisha and Elijah, who had both brought young men back from the dead. We see them, of course, many times in the Old Testament. Fingers riding on walls, people being whisked away to heaven, a man being cleansed of leprosy by dunking in the river, and the rather bizarre experience of Moses and Aaron. Both they and the Egyptian sorcerers are able to turn a staff into a snake and the water into blood. So when Jesus raised the son of Nain from the dead, they immediately attributed it to God or one of his prophets. A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. So they realized God was doing something, although not necessarily this was the Son of God doing it. Many Jews were waiting for the Messiah and they had certain expectations of what he would do. The miracles he performed were in line with their expectations to some extent, but they were not quite right. Old Testament verses from Isaiah start out with, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit and then go on to describe a man full of the Holy Spirit who will bring justice. So the Jews might expect he would overthrow the Romans and reclaim Israel's throne. And those super Jews, the Pharisees, 
They were trying to steer Jesus off course, trying to show he is not the Messiah by him being unable to do what they thought the Messiah would do. They asked for a sign from heaven that is more than a cripple's miraculous healing. So Matthew records, And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. A sign like the sun stopping in its tracks, or perhaps something like the prophet Samuel. Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. It was twice the Pharisees came to Jesus with the same request. But Jesus is not doing exhibition miracles, which supposedly would in themselves awaken faith in his Messiahship. Rather, at the first of these requests for a sign from heaven, he alludes to the greatest upcoming miracle of all, the truly important sign, when he answers the Pharisees by speaking of Jonah, three days in the fish, and that the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the earth. But there is more than an allusion to a miracle like Jonah and its relation to the coming sacrifice and burial of Christ, because Jesus also says about Jonah, For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So the point is the call to repentance through the teaching, not a miracle or sign from heaven. And at the beginning of the Gospels, Satan, knowing Jesus is the Son of God, attempts right away to have Jesus do a miracle of exhibition by throwing himself down with angels catching him. When Satan is tempting Jesus in the wilderness, do this miracle, do that miracle, it's no, no, no. It is written. It is written. Jesus never does a miracle which is an exhibition to wow the people. Jesus wants his miracles to be done in concert with his teaching, but in proper balance and not to become the center of his ministry. That would diminish the proclamation of the word, the preaching, the teaching. So we begin to see how the miracles authenticate Jesus as God, but are ultimately combined with his message, his teaching. Now an important part of why do miracles is, can miracles bring about faith? And we even know that some came to think Jesus was something like a magician. Like King Herod. I've been wanting to see this guy. Maybe he'll do a trick for us. Well, a way to understand that miracles by themselves do not awaken faith is in the death of the rich man and Lazarus. When the rich man realizes he has, can we say, missed it in his earthly life, and he is under judgment in the fire, he wants to warn his brothers. If someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Abraham said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So here again, the key is the words of the prophets, the scriptures, the word of God. It's called to faith and the miracles can't and won't by themselves awaken faith. And can we see how common it is today for the miracles of Jesus to be believed? Can we say? And yet there is no real faith, no real belief. So many love to start by ignoring much of the Bible, except things they like. Things Jesus said and did. You know, the, some of the red letter stuff. Jesus never said anything bad about homosexuality. Include that in your logic. And then, because there are so many healing miracles and kindnesses Jesus did, many will say he was a good man. He taught us to be kind and to do good. That was the point of his life. And yes, that's part. But many ignore the clear teaching which accompanies these miraculous good works. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Or, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. 
If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. That's better than that your whole body go to hell. But clearly there is some expectation that miracles would result in faith. After Jesus turns the water into wine, John reports this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Jesus is quite harsh about those cities where many of his miracles had been performed, yet the hearers remained in unbelief. He declares, If the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And then Jesus says what is fairly stunning. And you, Capernaum, will be exalted to heaven. You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. So even in notorious Sodom, the miraculous works should have brought repentance. So that would say the miracles were to awaken faith, and they are indeed part of it, but are they primary? Well, in Luke, right after Jesus does many, many healings, all those who were sick, he tells us the very next morning, Jesus, who's a very popular guy doing lots of miraculous healings, the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them, but he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. So there we see his main purpose, to preach the good news of the kingdom. This primacy of teaching the word along with the miracles is later confirmed after Jesus departs. When Paul and Barnabas are in Iconium, where they taught and ministered for a long time, it says they were speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. And the writer to the Hebrews warns readers not to sway from their obedience, reminding them about how they came to faith through preaching. It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. So all these are telling us the preaching, the teaching was primary and the miracles joined together to lead many to faith. And what happens after Jesus does one of his greatest miracles, feeding 5,000? They follow him. They want more bread. But he gives them a hard teaching and many turned away. But the disciples had seen these same miracles and they did not turn away. In fact... Immediately after this, Jesus asks, asks, Do you want to go away as well? But then Peter answers him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have all the bread to eat. No, he doesn't say that. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Because Jesus has the words of eternal life. Peter doesn't say, with you we get lifelong bread to eat, but add to this the very important response of Jesus. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So that's why Peter believes. Peter has seen so many miracles right in front of his eyes. Miracles which would, no doubt for you, can we say, blow your mind? Yet what does Peter say in his declaration? Jesus has the teaching, the words of eternal life, and the Father in heaven has changed Peter's heart and mind. Not the miracles themselves, but his sovereign will. Yet those miracles are important, but not ultimate in faith. Does Peter see them as being important? Well, yes, that's how he starts out his first sermon, as we're seeing today, pointing to the miracles of Jesus. So both Peter and Jesus point to his miracles and teaching coming together to increase faith. But of course, true faith comes only when the Father enables that person. As Jesus says, no one comes to the Son unless the Father enables him. So are miracles going to harden a heart or change a heart? Depends on what God is doing in a person's heart. Good example? Jesus has lots of brothers. 
They've been around him a long time. They see him start doing miracles. One brother is James, later the leader in the church of Jerusalem. One brother is Jude, also a biblical author. And they liked the miracles, thought they were cool and exciting. John tells us they say, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. What's the next verse? For not even his brothers believed in him. The brothers are not interested in Jesus' awakening faith, but in getting some praise and fame for these brothers so many miracles and no saving faith. Not yet anyway. God has yet to combine the miracles and the teaching and His sovereign mercy to awaken these very brothers of Jesus to saving faith. So what is this teaching which the miracles do? What is it ultimately pointing us to? We know Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He says He did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. So He starts by proclaiming the gospel, the good news. Like the demon-possessed girl said very simply about Paul and his companions who were carrying on Jesus' message, these men are teaching you the way to be saved. Now as humans, we are all descended from Adam and Eve. And we know at the beginning, these humans did not have a lot of problems. As a matter of fact, they had no problems. It was all good. But because of sin, we all have lots of problems. As a matter of fact, all the problems we have are a result of sin. We have unbelief. We have fear. We have no trust in God. We have anger and hatred, and we are just plain mean and self-centered. So this is the world we live in. We are afraid of sickness, of pain, of being injured or hurt. We are afraid of loved ones dying, of us dying. We're afraid of starving, being broke, being unclothed, being cold, of being alone, of being unloved, of having no purpose to our lives. So for unbelievers who do not understand or accept the reality of sin and what the Bible says about it and what it does to the human condition, A relief from the effects of sin in their lives may begin to get their attention to awaken something in their heart and conscience. Jesus came to bring redemption. His appearance was the grand plan of redemption. And that redemption ultimately ends up in heaven for the redeemed. And what is this place of redemption, heaven? What is it like? Well, God tells us. Behold, the place of dwelling, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And so in that relatively brief description of the life to come, will you notice what is described are the physical and mental impacts of sin which will be done away with. The mourning, crying, pain, tears, death, the effects of sin. And it is these things Jesus in his miracles reverses for many when he comes to earth. That is temporarily reverses until they pass from this life. His message and his miracles are about the undoing of the curse of sin, his healings and his rebuking of Satan. They're pointing to redemption. That's really what people need most, and that is what Jesus brings. You see, if someone does something which wows us a magic trick, or that was miraculous, that is the end, the the wow. But the wow is not the final result of any of Jesus' miracles, not at all. The final result... The healing, the casting out of a demon, it is redemption. And what's the big picture of their teaching? These miracles? Well, it's the same thing which Jesus spoke in teaching is. The same point. To point us to the ultimate miracle. The incarnation of Christ. His sinless life. 
The cross, the substitutionary death of the sinless Son of God on the cross, paying for our sins, bringing us redemption, rising from the dead, reigning now forever. That's what the miracles are ultimately part of, reminding us of, pointing us to, focusing us on the greatest and most important miracle of all. What C.S. Lewis calls the grand miracle in his book called Miracles. Writing to skeptics, he says, if the thing happened, it was the central event in the history of the earth. The very thing that the whole story has been about. Note we get this same point if we look forward to Paul's ministry. Because in Paul's teaching, he doesn't refer to the miracles of Christ to support his proclamation of the gospel. Paul, of course, does miracles, but they are done in Jesus' name. Done to join together with this teaching to point to Christ. But note, he doesn't point back to some miracle Jesus performed nor back to one of his own miracles when he's preaching and teaching. Except for one. He always points to the greatest of all miracles. The grand miracle. Ending in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and all it means for lost sinners. The teaching which the miracles do, each one ultimately points us to the grand miracle and its accompanying new birth in lost sinners. The centrality of the ministry of Christ was, after a sinless, compassion-filled life, to be put to death on the cross, purchasing our redemption with his own blood. So it makes sense that the miracles he does, even though they have an immediate meaning to the person involved and a broader meaning to other people in general, that they have their ultimate meaning in directing us to the greatest of all miracles, the incarnation, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We can just look at miracles of healing and of power. In Luke, there's a brief four-verse description of how Jesus heals a leper. Leprosy caused the person to be excluded from normal Jewish society and excluded a person from the tabernacle or temple from coming near to God in that sense. So we can see, and likely you have previously heard of, the connection between the leprosy and sin. The leprosy is a symbol for sin. This man was unclean. So as Jesus touches the man, instead of the leprosy contaminating Jesus too, the reverse happens. The leprosy is taken away the man is cleansed, and so we have redemption. Redemption for this one man, and yet it's pointing to the greatest redemption. What does it teach just this man at this moment? Well, he starts by kneeling before Jesus and saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. So he has some existing reverence, some level of faith that Jesus can help him. He knows he's got a serious problem and this is the man who can deal with this problem. The helpless leper certainly can't. So the man is healed and learns himself. This man, Jesus, has amazing compassion and power and likely nothing is too hard for him. But it's not just for him. We know also the event became well known. So it says, great crowds gather to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. So from this man's experience with Jesus, there was a broader result because many learned of it, but ultimately it is pointing us to the greater redemption. Jesus identifies with the leper by touching him. Jesus identifying with leprosy and its symbolism of sin looks forward to his identification with sin as he bore our sins on the cross, the ultimate act of redemption, the grand miracle. A helpless leper is healed by coming to Jesus and we, helpless, unworthy sinners, also must kneel before him and say, if you are willing, make me clean. And so because of the cross, the sacrifice of Christ for our sins on that cross, we can partake of the greater redemption, the ultimate redemption, the forgiveness for all of our wretched sins. We too can be told by Jesus, I will be clean. And what of a totally different miracle? In Matthew 14, when Jesus walks on the water, 
And Peter comes out of the boat to walk to him. This is not a healing miracle pointing directly to redemption, not raising from the dead pointing to resurrection. This is a miracle showing in the immediate sense the power of God over creation and that we can trust in him to save from death. The disciples are in the boat, having trouble with the churning sea. As Jesus walks by on the water, they have fear. It's a ghost! But Jesus says, It is I. Do not be afraid. That it is I is basically the same as him saying, I am. As in before Abraham was born, I am. Then Peter comes to Jesus with his approval, walking on the water, becomes fearful, begins to sink, cries out for Jesus to help him, and then Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? So this miracle is teaching us a lot about Jesus, and we can see it's pointing to the grand miracle, Jesus walking on the water. He's showing his power over creation. Only God can walk on water and calm the seas. The Old Testament speaks plenty about God's power over the seas, and here too he has power over the sea. Now first they have fear, some type of spirit. A ghost is on the water. It's very scary because it says they were terrified. It says they cried out in fear. But after Jesus speaks, their fear turns to joy. Realizing it's him, they know he can save them. Peter is so excited he's going to walk to him on the water. But unfortunately, Peter has what Jesus calls little faith. And he starts sinking. But Peter is looking to Jesus with trust and is rewarded as Jesus saves him anyway. So all this is ultimately pointing to the grand miracle. This brings his revealing he is the Son of God to a whole new level, walking on the water. He is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the one to believe in. He is the one to trust who can save us from much worse than drowning. There is fear mixed with faith. After all, this is God we're dealing with here. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." And how does this miracle passage end? The words of the disciples? "'Truly you are the Son of God!' Jesus' death and resurrection makes it so he can rescue us, but we must have at least little faith to come to him. And of course he will receive us since he is the source of our little faith. He will make sure we don't drown. Now we could go on with other miracles and see how they're ultimately pointing to the grand miracle and all it means. Whether it is all the healing miracles, which are just a foretaste of the final curse of sin being completely done away with at the cross for believers, or showing we are filthy but can be made clean, blind but now we see, or dead but be made alive. He really is God who can be our propitiation. He really will take care of those who follow. He does have power over Satan and death, and he does require faith, but he doesn't ever say no to anyone who will come to him with at least little faith to be made well, to be raised from spiritual death to life in Christ. So do you need a miracle to believe? If you're a believer, do you need a miracle to believe better? Jesus did so many miracles far beyond any lists we could make from reading the scriptures. And clearly they have an impact on both those who will not and those who will believe. To the one, it hardens or proves the stubbornness of their heart. To the other, those who will believe because of God's sovereign mercy on them, it is part of awakening or increasing faith. After the apostles had been with Jesus a long time, they blurted out one day to the Lord, increase our faith! And the man whose son is about to be healed by Jesus, casting out a demon, wonders if Jesus can do this miracle. If you can, he says to Jesus, Jesus says to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And the father's response is to cry out, I believe, help my unbelief. 
But you see, we have been witnessing the miracles of Jesus for centuries. Even though you are not an eyewitness, their actual occurrence recorded in the scriptures is as real today as then. They are all nicely assembled together in this book right here. The woman at the well experienced a miracle of Jesus knowing her whole life story and it was part of her nascent awakening faith. And what did she do? She went to the town and said, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? The miracle became known to them. And what happened to many? Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And we also have her testimony right here in these scriptures and the testimony of innumerable other miracles, if you'll believe them. They may have happened 2,000 years ago, but it doesn't matter. Their work, can we say, their awakening nascent faith or strengthening faith, they are just as powerful today. So what are the miracles for today? Well, most of us, perhaps all of us, would say we haven't seen these types of miracles we're looking at here today. But the most important miracle, the one which those miracles are all pointing to, the grand miracle, God is still constantly doing that resulting new birth miracle all across the globe. Here's a modern miracle. I'm standing here today. Standing here, believing all that is in this Bible is true. Knowing the grand miracle is true because God has opened the eyes and heart of a blind man. A man whose greatest hope is to spend eternity in a place he's never seen so he can worship forever the Son of Man he's never met. Trying to convince anyone who doesn't have that same hope to get it. To believe what Jesus says to each of us. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him. Who after your body has been killed has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. But he can turn that fear upside down when we realize we are crippled, disfigured, contaminated sinners come to Jesus and hear him say, I am willing, be clean. To say, son, your sins are forgiven, pick up your mat and walk. To really believe there will be wrath and fury, there will be tribulation and distress. To believe God when he looks at your unbelieving, unrepentant life and says, they have forsaken me. The fountain of living waters and hewed out cisterns for themselves Broken cisterns that can hold no water. Life being poured out into a lovely mirage of self-living rather than Christ-living. No, not that. This instead. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To convince you Jesus is calling to you. Come! Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine, milk, without money and without price. You know, many times I have read that summation of Paul's life's work at the end of Romans. It's where he looks back and he says, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. Now I read that and I see he's recounting the point of his life's work, bringing the Gentiles to obedience, the same work you and I have been given today. That's how Paul started out 15 chapters earlier in Romans in the very first sentence regarding the work Paul was given by God to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. But maybe someone might see the frustration I sometimes feel buried in Paul's description of his ministry. He did his work 
By word and deed. Got that? Got the word? Do some deeds. By the power of the Spirit of God. Got that? God works in hearts to change them, not me. But then also, by the power of signs and wonders. Don't got that. Don't got those miracle miracles like theirs. Jesus did all those miracles. Then Paul and others were blessed with God's power to do miracles for the proclamation of the gospel. So Paul's in Ephesus for two years. And it says, everyone in Asia heard the word of the Lord. And during that time it says, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. And so I can often feel not fair. Of course they're listening to Paul. He did miracles. They listened intently. God worked in some hearts to save some of those years. It would be nice to be telling people about Christ to be able to say, now that you can walk, would you like to hear more about Jesus? If you're feeling better now that your cancer is gone, let me tell you more about the eternal judgment to come about heaven and hell. But without getting into whether these kinds of miracles are for today or not, I say that's okay. It doesn't matter. Because these miracles are all a small part of the grand miracle. That's the miracle which counts. True saving faith interrupting the conveyor belt of people going to hell. And it comes by faith and faith by hearing the word of Christ. We are simply unworthy servants. We love and pray and speak and persuade. And God does as he pleases. So the grand miracle is alive and well. The miracle that really counts. New birth and lost sinners which God sovereignly brings about through the gospel. And look at this. Paul had no Bible like this here. Paul did not have all these truths and miracles nicely assembled in this one book. He had scrolls. He had a thorough knowledge of the Old Testament. But we have the whole story from beginning to end. At the moment Jesus did a miracle, the person needed healing, needed pain relief. That's what was on their mind. Were they thinking of their sin and need for forgiveness? I'm not sure about each of them. But I do know what happened is written right here in this book along with many, many miracles. So John says, important, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So we have right here in this Bible the miracles, the teachings, the truths, all the ways God showed himself to be the saving, judging, ruler of the universe, all that happened in the first century right here in this one book. We've got the printing press and radio and video and mobility which Paul could only have dreamed of. We've got the internet connecting the entire world. Is Jesus still relevant to the world? If you search Google for the word Jesus, it has a half a billion hits. And one can do that from almost anywhere in the world. The word of God along with the miracles Miracles can be proclaimed and preached and taught by means which the apostles could never imagine. Miracles would be nice, but all these modern things would be miracles to Paul. You hear stories about people in closed countries getting a Bible and how joyful they are to have one. Now imagine the joy Paul would have if we handed him a Bible and said, I've got another couple hundred of these to pass around if you'd like some in ten different languages. He'd go nuts with all the ways he could use what we have today to accomplish the grand miracle. I mean, go to Spain? No sweat. Alitalia Airlines from Leonardo da Vinci International for 99 euros. That's a miracle. So when Jesus does these miracles, is there something underlying his authenticating his character and authenticating his message? 
Besides saying, now look here, I am the Messiah, so listen carefully. Yes, very definitely. What is it? It's compassion for people. Jesus goes by himself to a desolate place to be alone, but they wouldn't leave him alone. They had to be with him. So they found him. Then, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. And the grieving woman in Nain going to her son's funeral is stopped while she cries. And we read, And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. And he raises her son from the dead. The father waits for his prodigal son, and when he is far off, as Jesus tells the story, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Yes, Jesus is filled with compassion for the people. He goes about teaching and healing in all the cities and there is an overwhelming crowd of needy, lost, sick, hopeless people. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. For what purpose? To do miracles and preach the good news. And we've got all those miracles right here in this book. Part of the miracle working good news. And it's all put together for the ultimate purpose of the grand miracle. The grand miracle of new birth, rescue from hell, unto the eternal worship of our King. Father, we thank you that you invaded your creation by sending your Son. When the time had fully come to be born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us who would believe after your sinless life and your crucifixion, your resurrection, and all of the miracles you did showing yourself to be who you said you were, to show your love for your people in their suffering in life, because of sin and yet the ultimate redemption and we know the next time you come back you will indeed bring the final redemption and the final judgment when you come with all of your holy ones when the trumpet sounds so help each of us to be prepared for that day by reading the miracles the teaching all of the truths that you have fully displayed, disclosed, and shown to us about how great a Savior you are. To the glory of Christ. Amen.